0: and welcome to the not a cast podcast uh, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week i'm one of your hosts jeff better known as Britta b fish and i'm your other host Emmett, better known as poor quentin and welcome to the 153rd episode of the cast titled, The Lost and the Dead, an analysis of a storm of swords, Catelyn 1, in which, at last, we come to the darkest, lowest place that Catelyn Stark, Knee Tully will ever be in all of a Song of Ice and Fire. Damn, this is rock bottom for Catelyn, it's sad, it sucks for her, but that only means that she can go up from here, right Emmett?
1: All sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and what else do happy people like? I've forgotten. All that stuff.
0: That's what's ahead for Catalan. They like Sublime. The the band Sublime. They like. (laughs) Happy people have terrible taste. You know, that makes perfect sense to me. Wait a minute. Wow. Wow. Hold the fucking phone. I couldn't resist. You put that one on the T for me. It's not my fault. That's true. That is very, very true. Uh, I regret everything already. So sad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> good. Oh, my good. God. How would I go from here? Oh, I could do it by announcing all of our, our Not-A-Small uh, not Council patrons. So this episode is, all, is, as always, brought to you by our Not-A-Small Council patrons, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Timbob, troubleshooter of systems the designer of circuit boards, Lord Commander of the guard Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester Joom, Heal of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Otherworld Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, Lord Jacob, Assistant the, the Head of the King, Lady Xenia Valyrian. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, Dana, and Prince, Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorn, Kelly, worthy of the suspicious of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the, the Blue Winter Rose Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugatit Stent, the Light Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Share, and Bastard of Chromatica, Exulter of Black Lives and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and General Dems, and the Nauticast, Non Binary, Not an Army. over the Waiter for Twell. A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Uron Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Benaris of House Colgarian, the First of Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devity the Great, Game of Thrones, Portia of the Realm, Lady of Realists of Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michael Lejo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgo, Lady Elizabeth, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shipper Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark the Cadaver King, and Horror of Hall. Ola proposed establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils, wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Ringer Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club Part Two. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Bloodbrewer and Guardian the Bone Way. Luke, Lord, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt S. Future Matt S. The one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and patron of free-wheeling bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate, Lord Christoph of Arundel, official ice master deliverer the valiant, pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger-sweet love queen, Anna. Lord, Sir, Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War, the King's Wood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Sir Kel, Contractor in Charge of Continually Extending the Small Council Table. Lord, Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Ways, Captain of the War galley Galley, Nightwolf, the Ship that Stalks the Seven Seas, and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel, Trident, Summoner, the Blade that Brings the Deep Ones. And our two newest members of the Small Council, you heard that right, that is two new members of the Small Council. Lord Anonymous II, and Lord Tyler, the Prince that Promises to Wait Patiently for the winds of winter. Thank you to all of our Not A Small Council patrons, and welcome to Lord Adamus and Lord Tyler to the ever-expanding table that's constantly going out and wide. I don't know, how how are we going to fit everyone in this room at this point, Emmett?
1: Well, you know, like any good wedding, we have to break it up into a bunch of smaller tables. You know, like the red wedding. Gotta have a bunch of victims at each table. Gotta you do have it the properly. No, course-
0: yeah, the tents outside too for yeah. <laughs> Exactly.
1: You know. <laughs> exactly. Spread them all out. No, but thank you as always to our small counselors
0: and special welcome to our, to our new members. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very happy to have you. And our spoiler, as you say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is, the five novels, three tongue-kicked novels, histories, interviews, the Windswept Sample Chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir
1: Snark Knight, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, Your graces, while I have read the essay, listened to the bonus episodes, and watched the discussion with Joe, the magician, one part of the Eldritch Apocalypse theory I haven't absorbed yet is, how does it end? The Tyrells suffer the wharf effect, knock out the show the threat, Old Town is reduced to a sandcastle in high tide, Euron gives the horn a toot to bring the wall down, maybe he takes a dragon off the board, or has a psychic confrontation with Bran. But then what do you think happens? In cosmic horror, the person summoning the Eldritch Abomination is always the first devoured. Or does he go out mewling and pathetic like Harold in The Stand? Nothing ever ends, but Euron seems destined to end sooner than others. Maybe our final human antagonist in the saga. Well, Jeff, as the person who wrote the Eldritch Apocalypse <laughs> Theory and has all the best ideas about Euron Greyjoy, clearly you should answer this question. How how do you think uh, Euron Greyjoy goes down? No matter what shenanigans he, got, he gets up to, how do you imagine his final moments?
0: You know, I, I have, you know, as the writer of the Eldritch Apocalypse Theory, um, the many thousands of words that I spent writing that theory, just, you know, some of my finest work, if, if I do say so myself, it's truly, truly magnificent tying, you know, Lovecraft in with the, with the Song of Ice and Fire. No, obviously, Emmett wrote the Eldritch Apocalypse Theory for Euron's Endgame in A Song of Ice and Fire. And we did cover this extensively in, again, our five-part series on The Forsaken, but... Uh, we we sometimes get these questions about uh, the Eldritch Apocalypse theory, which I was like just put he- put on here too because I always like to to toss it back to Emmett, because it just allows me to sit back and just bask in the way that you talk about this because I, there's no one in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom besides maybe George himself who really has a grasp on what. Is happening with Euron Greyjoy. No one who has a better grasp than than you, sir. So I want you to take it away. But don't spoil too much of our episodes, our Patriot episodes on The (laughs) Forsaken because those are goddamn good episodes if I do say so myself. I I know I I was there, but they're goddamn good episodes and you motherfuckers should be listening to them. Anyways, what is the end game for Euron Greyjoy when it comes to The Song of Ice and Fire?
1: Well, the f- the fun thing about Euron, I think, is that he just touches on so many different areas and so many different parts of the story, so many different kinds of power. And because of that, he kind of has like like endgame bosses in a bunch of different ways. You know what I mean? Like he has like the Tyrells on the ground who are already raising men to fight his invasion of the Reach. You have Daenerys who he's pursuing, who he might steal a dragon from. But Snark Knight brought up in the question, like, the character I think will have the most to do with Euron at the end, and that's Bran. That is important, I think, because Bran is, in the end, as the show kind of hinted at, like this, the secret hidden protagonist of A Song of Ice and Fire. We've been covering some of that idea in our Clash of Kings chapters on him. And Euron, I think, as also uh, Snark Knight said, is is the closest thing to a human antagonist in the series. So I think it makes sense for them to fight. they are kind of parallels and contrasts in a lot of ways. Euron being a former kind of rogue protege of Blood Ravens and Bran being his new one, kind of in a, a Luke, Darth Vader, Obi-Wan, kind of very, very classic kind of way. And I think the really strong setup for this is you have Bran in the prologue – well, you have Verimir Sixskins in the prologue to A Dance with Dragons as the POV. And you have his horrible history of all he's done with his magical power, turning on his mentor, killing his sibling. He's a very Euron-like figure, and we see him at the end. We see him try to escape his mortal body into his second life. And then shortly thereafter in A Dance with Dragons, we see Bran Stark kick his ass while hmm. working into some or his own wolf. And I wonder if that might be kind of a glimpse of what's coming for Euron, that he might try to, after losing in the mortal realm, after, you know, getting defeated by the Terrells or by Daenerys or just losing himself to the others, whatever happens, he tries to escape into the second life, into some other body or just, you know, the abstract ethereal, you know zone outside the world he tries to exist on as a spirit and then Brand, just like with Varamir, defeats him and stops him that would be my guess but Yaron, what something I love about Uranus is such a mysterious character and again has so many irons in the fire that it really could be anything and I think he's a class he is among many characters a classic example of George's gardening style because there's so much that is just intuited and possible, and that George just leaving himself open to go down any number of roads with the crow's eye. So that's just my thoughts. Because I, I think Bran and him line up in a number of interesting ways,
0: but it could be could be any number of others for sure. That's the thing about your own Greyjoy that that's I found so surprising is that how different he is, or his story seems to be evolving from what I thought it was going to be when I was reading A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, even as late as as twenty six was that 20, yeah, 2016 yeah, twenty sixteen when George read read the Forsaken. So mm-hmm. I, I find that really interesting that uh how how different his plan is developed from what my original conception uh, of it was. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this episode as opposed to watching us live, we do have uh, a live cast every single week and a really great question that came from Guilty Undertaker. I'm going to toss it over to you as a kind of addendum to this question, which is he asks, or he or she asks, will Euron end up as a broken, pathetic man like Varamyr is when we meet him again. So when we meet him at this end state, is he going to be kind of like the six Sixkins character from *A Dance with Dra- from the Dance with Dragons prologue? And I kind of like that. What do you think?
1: I think that's good because I love what Varamyr says to the Weirwood tree when he imagines the old gods are watching him when he's bleeding out. And he says, those those were the gifts you gave me. And I feel like that might be Euron's final excuse too. Like, if I'm so terrible, why did you let me do it? And I feel like that's that's something I always find compelling in villains when they're brought to their, their final gasp and their final moment is that their final words are like, well... Whatever force runs the universe, if there is such thing as a god, they watched. They, like the King's Guard with Matt, the Mad King, they stood, they watched, they did nothing. Yes. They didn't stop me. So if they're there, that means they approve, right? Like it's not so far off from what uh, Iago says at the end of Othello when he just finally goes silent, silent, like you're on ship and just leaves mm-hmm. it up to the gods. Like I've done what I've done. You can judge me all you want, but, you know, I don't, I don't submit myself to your judgment and I think that might be Euron's final kind of pathetic last gasp is if there is a higher power than me, it allowed me to happen. So screw you. <laughs> I think I do see that as maybe maybe
0: his last moment. I could do, I like that parallel. That's great. Yeah. I think that's 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 wonderfully. I mean, I just love the way you like thread various parts of like a song of ice and fire lore, as well as the obvious influence that George has with the and Shakespeare and you know, uh, it's so good asking it's – it's so good having a question specifically tailored for you. So so I get to like play the part of like a, a listener to the podcast, which I – Well, know, we'll get a think. bunch more Jamie and, and
1: good John Connington and military questions just just to balance it out. But he, uh, yeah, uh, our friend Matt, aka Joe, the magician who have talked about with the stuff, so he desc- describes uh, Euron as maybe a depowered Saruman in the chat. And I think that's a really strong comparison. I did one of the Lord of the Rings episodes I did – was about Saruman's like confrontation with our heroes after he's like lost his power and has only his voice to try to compel them to let him escape. And I can see that with Euron at the end, like he's just kind of pathetic and cringing, but all he has is his, his charisma. And that's, uh, that, that's very good stuff. It really, really is good stuff. So thank you to Sir Snark Knight for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the notacast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash nauticast where you can get show notes, you can get bonus episodes, free merch, access to the Nauta Slack, and more. So again, if you want to check that out, that's patreon.com slash nauticast
0: Yes, indeed. And you know, It's been a while, several months, I believe, since we reminded you folks that we have a long-term stretch goal, but we are actually going to be changing that up next week. Patrons are going to get their first sniff at what that's going to be in in a post for our our September update. But for for you folks, please tune in next week for the announcement of what our long-term stretch goal is going to be. I think you're really, really going to like it, so... Stay tuned and join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash A S O I A F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Katlyn Stark, she had learned that Brand and Rickon were dead. And then, in an unambiguously heroic act without any downsides or consequences, Catelyn freed Jamie Lannister from River Run in hopes that she'd be able to get Sansa and Arya back from the Lannisters in King's Landing. Let's find out how this goes exactly to plan in this synopsis of *A Storm of Swords*, Catelyn One. Sir Desmond Grell had served House Tully all his life. He had been a squire when Catelyn was born, a knight when she learned to walk and ride and swim, mastered arms by the day she was wed. He had seen Lord Hoster's little cat become a young woman, a great Lord's lady, mother to a king. And now he has seen me become a traitor as well. Well, obviously, this is, this is bad for Catelyn. It's, it's her lowest point for our mom. And things can only improve for Lady Catelyn from here on out in a storm of swords, right? Right? Uh, Catelyn thinks about how Edmure named Sir Desmond Grell Castellan, which meant that he had to deal with Catelyn's criminality. Desmond had brought authorides Wayne with him to ease the burden of having to confront Catelyn. But these men were kind of disgraced by Catelyn's conduct. Desmond Grell com- comforts Catelyn over the loss of her sons, and that's totally why Catelyn released Jamie. right? I understood what I was doing, and I knew it to be treasonous. If you fail to punish me, men will believe that we connived together to free Jamie Lannister. It was my own act and mine alone, and I must answer for it. Put me in the king's slayer's empty irons, and I will wear them proudly. If that is how it must be, fetters—the very words seemed to shock poor Sir Desmond. For the king's mother, my lord's own daughter, I- impossible. Uh, mayhaps, said the steward authorized Wayne, my lady would consent to be confined to her chambers until Sir Edmund returns, a time alone to, pay f- to pray for her murdered sons. Confined? ay, Sir Desmond said. Confined to a tower cell? Yes, that would serve. If I am to be confined, let it be in my father's chambers, so I might comfort him in his last days. Desmond says that's... Fine, but Catelyn will not have the freedom of the castle until Edmure returns. But now that the distasteful task is done, these dudes need to get the hell out of here. Othrides does pause at the door to tell Catelyn that Robin Riker will retrieve Jamie Lannister soon, or he'll kill him. Catelyn had expected no less. May the warrior give strength to your sword arm, Brienne, she prayed. She had done all she could. Nothing remained but to hope. Catelyn's things are moved to Hoster Tully's bedchamber by the river balcony. When Catelyn arrives, she finds her dad asleep. Catelyn wonders if she's actually bringing Hoster comfort, but she feels solace being around him. Catelyn wonders what Hoster would think or say if he knew about her crimes. What would he do if it were Lysen Catelyn in the hands of their enemies? The room smells like death, and Catelyn thinks it reminds her of her dead sons. She thinks the world is supremely unfair to take Ned and Bran, and Rick on away. It is a monstrous, cruel thing to lose a child, Catlin whispered softly more to herself than her father. Lord Hoster's eyes opened. Tansy! He husked in a voice thick with pain. He does not know me. Catlin had grown accustomed to him taking her for her mother or her sister Lysa, but Tansy was a name stranger. It's Catlin, she said. It's Cat, father. For Forgive me, the, the blood, oh, oh please... Tansy Catelyn wonders if there was another woman in Hoster's life. Maybe a woman after Lady Minissa had died? She asks who Hoster, she asks Hoster who Tansy was and whether she's still alive. Sir Hoster groaned, Dead His hands groped for hers. You'll have others. Sweet babes and Trueborn. Others? Catelyn thought. Has he forgotten that Ned is gone? Is he still talking to Tansy? Or is it me now, or Lysa, or mother? When he coughed, the sputum came up bloody. He clutched her fingers. Be a good wife and God the, and the gods will bless you. Sons! Trueborn sons! Ah! A sudden spasm of pain made Lord Hoster's hand tighten. His nails dug into her hand and he gave a muffled scream. At that, Maester Vyman shows up with the milk of the poppy and Hoster falls asleep again. Catelyn asks Vyman about this tansy woman and the maester really has no idea who Hoster might mean. When Catelyn tries to reason through when Caitlin tries to reason it through, thinking, yeah, maybe it's a serving girl or a woman from a village, Vyman can't remember anyone by that name. Though the small folk do have a tendency to name their daughters after flowers and herbs. Maybe she was this widow that Vyman is remembering who came by to sole shoes? No, Catelyn corrects Vyman, that was a woman by the name of Violet. The maester apologizes, but then says he's not supposed to talk to her unless duty requires. Catelyn tells Vyman to do his duty, thanking her Lucky Stars that she's freed of the war, just for a little while, at least in this room. She gets into a woolen cloak and walks to the balcony, searching to see if anyone is returning up the river with Jamie. And though a raven does come, there's no sign of Robin Ryger or of Jamie Lannister. At dinner time, Vyman brings Catelyn some bland sounding food, telling her that there be no that there is no such person as Tansy at Riverrun. Okay, well, how about that raven? Is Jamie taken? No? Battle? No? What about Rob? Uh well, um Viman isn't supposed to say, but Tywin has left the Riverlands. Okay, where did that raven come from then? Catelyn asks. Why the West, Viman says. Was it about Rob? Vyman hesitated. Y- yes, my lady. Something is wrong. She knew it from his manner. He was hiding something from her. Tell me, is it Rob? Is he hurt? Not dead. Cosby, good, please do not tell me that Rob is dead. His grace took a wound, me the crag, Mr Vyman said, still evasive. But Papa writes that it's no cause for concern, and that he hopes to return very soon. Catelyn asks what kind of wound, but Vyman assures Catlin that Rob is totally being cared for at the crag comforted even. But seriously, vyman he cannot talk about that. Vyman then beats feet as Milk of the Poppy does its work on Hoster. Lord Tully starts to drool and Catelyn wipes his mouth. When she touched him, Lord Hoster moaned, forgive me, he said so softly that she could scarcely hear the words. Tansy, blood, the blood, gods be kind. His words disturbed Catelyn more than she could say, though she could make no sense of them. Blood, she thought. Must it always come back to blood? Father, who was this woman? And what did you do to her that needs so much forgiveness? Catelyn has nightmares of dead children that night and wakes with Hoster's words about blood and children in her head. She wonders why Hoster would say that. Sure, she'd believe that Edmure was off making bastards, but, but not her dad. Maybe Tansy was a nickname for Lysa? Maybe. But he did say something about true born children, and Lysa had miscarried five times. Detective Catelyn starts to put the pieces together. Lysa and Catelyn married the same day at River Run, but where Catelyn got insta pregnant from Ned's super sperm, Lysa had only had Lysa only had a late period. And when Catelyn had handed Rob to Lysa, she burst into tears and ran away. If she had lost a child before, that might explain father's words, and much else besides. Lyce's match with Lord Aaron had been hastily arranged, and John was an old man even then, older than her father, an old man without an heir. Her first two wives had left him childless. His brother's son had been murdered with Brandon Stark in King's Landing. His gallant cousin had died in the Battle of the Bells. He needed a young wife if House Aaron was to continue, a young wife known to be fertile. Catlin rose, threw on a robe, and descended the steps of the darkened solar to stand over her father. A sense of helpless dread filled her. "'Father,' she said. "'Father, I know what you did.' She was no longer an innocent bride with a head full of dreams. She was a widow, a traitor, a grieving mother, and wise, wise in the ways of war, wise in the ways of the world. "'You made him take her,' she whispered. Lysa was the price John Aaron had to pay for the swords and spears of House Tully.' Well, given the state of things, that's not terrible deduction, Catelyn. You're awesome, but you are missing a certain component, potentially, in your investigation. One little thing. Maybe if you think, think back to what Hoster was croaking about in The Clash of Kings, you might be able to put it all together, kind of piece it together. <sighs> Catelyn realizes that this was why Lysa's marriage was so loveless. Jon Aaron was probably kind and dutiful, but Lysa needed warmth. The next day, Catelyn decided to write to Lysa. She wrote to him about Bran and Rigon, but mostly she wrote to her sister about her father dying. Her thoughts, His thoughts are of all the wrong he did you, now that his time grows short. Maester Vyman says he, da- he dare not make the milk of the poppy any stronger. It is time for father to lay down his sword and shield. It is time for him to rest. If he fights on grimly, will not yield. It is for your sake, I think. He needs your forgiveness. The war has made the road from the Erie to River Run dangerous to travel, I know. But surely, surely a strong force of knights could see you safely through the mountains of the moon. A hundred men? Or a thousand? And if you cannot come, will you at least write him a, a, a few words of love so he might die in peace? Write what you will, and I shall read it to him and ease his way. But even as Catelyn finishes this really well-written letter, man, you're a great writer in addition to being awesome in all your ways, Catelyn, she knows that it probably won't do any good. Hosser would be dead soon, and Lysa would probably not even come. Still, Catelyn heads to the Sept to pray about it, as well as offer prayers for her father, mother, Lysa and the babies that Lysa lost. Jesus, man, this is some hard fucking shit. Later in the day, Catelyn hears voices and trumpets. She climbs up to the roof, thinking that it might be Robin Reiger. But instead, Catelyn is, re- is relieved to find that it's Edmure, Tully returning to Riverrun. It only takes two hours for Edmure to come see Catelyn as the castle reunites noisily underneath of them. Edmure arrives in Hosser's room, and she notices that he looks thin, drawn and unkept, with mud spattered on his boots. Edmure, Captain said, you, you look unwell. Has something happened? Have the lancers crossed the river? I threw them back. Lord Tywin, Gregor Clegane, Adam Barbrand, I turned them away. Stannis, though, he grimaced. Stannis? Well, what of Stannis? He lost the Battle of King's Landing, Edmure said unhappily. His fleet was burned. His army routed. Catelyn isn't exactly thrilled that the Lannisters won, but she's not sad that Stannis lost, given that she what she saw of Renly, who unexpectedly unexpectedly accidentally, who did it, died peacefully back at Storm's End. Catelyn remarks that Stannis was no more a friend than Tywin, but Edmure corrects her. No, it's much, much worse than that. Highgarden has declared for Joffrey. And Catelyn, you released Jamie? What the fuck, sis? you had no right. I had a mother's right. Her voice was calm, though the news about Highgarden was a savage blow to Rob's hopes. She could not think about that now, though. No right, Edmure repeated. He was Rob's captive, your king's captive, and Rob charged me to keep him safe. Well, according to Catelyn, Brienne is going to be the one keeping Jamie safe from here on out. Thanks, Edmure, And- Brienne will deliver Jaime to King's Landing to return, Arya and Sansa to her. Edmure says that Cersei ain't going to release the girls. Ah, well, Catelyn planned to conduct the exchange with Tyrion. See, she's thought of everything. Except that Tyrion took an axe wound to the head at the Battle of the Blackwater and will probably be dead before Brienne reaches King's Landing. Dead? Could the gods be so merciless? Catelyn had made Jamie swear a hundred oaths, but it was his brother's promise she had pinned her hopes on. Edmure was blind to her distress. Jamie was my charge, and I mean to have him back. I've sent ravens. Ravens to whom? How many? Three, he said, so the messages would be certain to reach Lord Bolton. By River Road, the way from River Run to King's Landing must needs take them close by Harrenhal. Harrenhal. The very words seemed to darken the room. Horror thickened her voice as she said— Enmure, do you know what you have done? Enmure says, no, it's fine. Catelyn's part has been left out of the letter. The letter claims that Jamie escaped, and he's offering a thousand golden dragons reward for his recapture. Does that make it better, Catelyn? No, no, it does not make it better. It is much, much worse. Catelyn cries as she tells Enmure that what Enmure has done is make it look like an escape rather than than an exchange of hostages. It will never come to that. The Kingslayer will be returned to us. I have made certain of it, Edmure said. All you have made certain is that I shall never see my daughters again. Brienne might have gotten him to King's Landing safely, so long as no one was hunting for them. But now... Catelyn could not go on. Leave me, Edmure. She had no right to command him. Here in the castle that would soon be his. Yet her tone brooked no argument. Leave me to father by grief. I have no more to say to you. Go! Go! All Catelyn wanted was to lie down, to close her eyes and sleep, and pray that no dreams would come. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords Catelyn 1. Melancholy, beautiful writing, that's what this chapter is all about. And as with every Catelyn chapter, as we said this in our mini so we did for our patrons, I love it. What did you think, sir?
1: So Catelyn was my favorite POV in A Clash of Kings. Her chapters ran the gamut from Rob to Jamie, Renly to Stannis, Brightest Day to Blackest Night. George was showing us all of the options available for Westeros, and also showing off everything he could do as a writer. Now he boils that dramatic range down to its tragic essence. Catelyn's storyline in A Storm of Swords is structurally perfect a one-way ticket to hell. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. I compared her story in Clash to a rainbow, an arc told in bright colors. In Storm, all that color is bleached out, leaving behind only black and white and gray, with a burst of red right at the end. So where last week Jamie One opened him up to a wide horizon to reflect his rebirth, Catalin one pulls in close and tight around her to reflect her doom. It's a very interior chapter, a self-contained chamber piece. It's like an overture to an opera or a ballet, establishing everything to come in miniature. Davos, I think, is my favorite POV in Storm, but Catalin is a very close second. These chapters are just as good as her class chapters, maybe even better.
0: I'm having a hard time figuring out an argument against that because, yeah, her chapters (laughs) in Storm, I've read all of them before we came to this episode. And, yeah, they're they're all amazing in different ways as she approaches Death's Door. And I think I've always been – Struck by the way you talked about Catelyn Stark and especially the colors uh, in, in her story and ble- having them bleached out now is just beautiful. And I've always loved that color commentary you do on Catelyn the <laughs> Clash of Kings and now a Storm of Swords. Because Catelyn's Clash chapters were just outstanding in so many ways. But one of my favorite ways that they're really great was just how much physical ground that they covered. From River Run mm. to Bitterbridge to Storm's End, Catelyn was a walking world builder expanding the reader's perspective on the wider world on the wider world of Westeros. That's not really the case in A Storm of Swords, minus that one time when they visit Old Stones, and which is just one of the most gorgeously written chapters in a Song of Ice and Fire, because mostly what Catelyn is doing in Storm is being quote unquote confined to chambers. Chained to River Run, a place she'd been at since *A Clash of Kings*, and visited in *A Game of Thrones*. And then thrust forward to the twins, another place that she visited back in her ninth chapter in *A Game of Thrones*. These are all familiar places for Catelyn, and that location of River Run itself it creates a kind of claustrophobic feeling for Cat because she's stuck. She's on a one-way ticket towards doom, and it's almost like the first. Six chapters of her story are Catelyn being on death row, right? She's like chained to a wall waiting for her turn Mm. to go to the noose. And her seventh chapter is the execution, literally and figuratively. It truly is, as you said, a one-way ticket to hell.
1: I love that idea of her being on death row until the very end. It's that combination of, of dread and stasis, that something is coming and there's nothing you can do about it. Catelyn's story in this book is all about things falling apart. Everything you could believe in is betrayed, from social structures to personal relationships, leaving you alone with despair and death. In her next chapter, we learn that Rob broke his marriage pact, and that Edmure's victory at the Battle of the Fords helped the Lannisters win at the Battle of the Blackwater. Rickard Karstark betrays Rob and murders unarmed boys in their beds. Rob executes him for it, even though he was the father of those who died for Rob at the Battle of the Whispering Wood. Lord Hoster dies. And not only that, but Edmure can't even manage his funeral rites properly. We can't even grieve right. Rob stares down the crumbling statue of a king, his face worn away, his words lost to time. Nothing lasts. It all feeds into the Red Wedding the ultimate collapse of community bonds, in which a wedding becomes a slaughter and the sacred tradition of guest right is violated. As effective as the Red Wedding is in isolation, it wouldn't hit as hard without the buildup, the slow decay that finally gives way. While this storyline ends with Catelyn as the victim of violated norms, it begins with her as the renegade who has defied protocol, she's the one who broke the rules. I mean, Catalan has pretty clearly violated the chain of command here, releasing a valuable prisoner without Rob's consent, nor Hoster's, nor Edmure's. But everyone breaks the rules. Sometimes it's because the alternative seems worse. Sometimes it's because the rule itself seems harsh or absurd. Sometimes it's just because you'll think you'll get away with it. Our social roles are just that. Roles. Masks we wear. Society is a performance and through Catelyn's eyes, we watch the performance break down. The Red Wedding is the biggest and most devastating expression of that theme, so here at the beginning, we get the opposite, the most small-scale, the most comedic. We get this funny scene where the men Edmure left in charge of the castle show up to arrest Catelyn and then can't bring themselves to do it. Desmond Grell and Utherides Wayne spent their lives in service to House Tully. But now their duty doesn't seem so clear. What are they supposed to do when House Tully turns on itself, when Hoster's daughter goes behind the back of Hoster's son? Are they supposed to arrest the lady of the castle, put her in chains? Inconceivable. Jamie said it best to Catalan herself. Your oaths will inevitably come into conflict, like the human heart always in conflict with itself. And the human heart is also at play here. After all, these men have known Catelyn her entire life. They remember her as a little girl. Cat thinks that Sir Desmond was just a squire when she was born. It's very difficult for them to see her as a traitor. Just as it's difficult for her to see Littlefinger as an enemy. Just as Rob can't see his new in-laws, the Westerlings, for what they are, until it's too late. So these men, Desmond and Eutherides in this scene, they have to dance around the obvious, refusing to directly face what she's done or what they're doing. Like a lot of great comedy scenes, the roles are reversed. Instead of her making excuses, they make them for her. Oh, she must have been driven by grief for her boys, they say. A mother's madness. You didn't know what you were doing. Catalan is the one who makes the case against Catalan. Far from being mad with grief, she lays out the facts with admirable clarity. I committed treason. If you don't punish me for that, everyone's going to think you were in on it, and you're going to lose your authority, too. It's so ironic because Desmond Grell is the one overcome with emotion. He's the one who can't think clearly, even as as he's telling Catalan, oh, you weren't thinking clearly. It's just so funny to watch Catalan patiently negotiate her own house arrest, like she's locking her own cell door behind her for them. (laughs) Jamie was freed, but remains in chains. Catelyn has been imprisoned, but is still seen as an authority figure. She has to walk these men through the unthinkable, making it thinkable, making it policy, the new normal. And that's what the Red Wedding is too. Not just chaos, but one kind of ritual devouring and replacing another, making use of the old world even as it dies. Cataline is trying to restore order after having broken it and is willing to pay the price. She is going to pay more than she ever bargained for. That's what's going on on a systemic level. On an individual level, Cataline is also trying to maintain her own dignity and sense of self-worth. I did this, she says. It is my crime. I will suffer for it proudly because it's mine. Desmond and Eutherides have good intentions. They wish her well. They want to control the narrative so she's not a pariah. But when they tell her she didn't know what she was doing, they stand in for a political culture that has kept Catelyn perched on the cusp of power. She has had to play a woman's role in a man's world. The point isn't that this automatically justifies anything she does with the power she does wield. I do think it was probably a mistake to let Jamie go. The point is that she has to fight even to be held responsible for her actions. Desmond and Eutherides don't want Catelyn to suffer. They want her to play her role. Daughter of the Lord, Mother of the King, Keeper of the Conventional Wisdom. And she plays along to make it easier on all of them. Fine, confine me like a princess in a tower. Let me grieve with my father. Proper womanly stuff. But she's beginning to realize what a farce it all is. Nothing they do now really matters as far as she's concerned. She put her faith in Brienne, she thinks, someone who is always outstanding outside the norms. All Catelyn can do now is sit and wait and hope for the best.
0: And that's the, just a dynamic in Catelyn's story. You know, in Clash, she specifically remembers having Hoster go away on his various rides and telling her to wait for me, little cat. And she would always perch up on the top of River Run and wait for her father to come Back to her, which was a, a joyous event. What she's waiting for now is not quite so joyous, and I think the reason why is because that she's she's broken a few rules. I'm not saying she's wrong, because as we argued in our final cat chapter in *A Clash of Kings*, you know I took the side that Catelyn was absolutely justified. Because, yeah, you know, plain to type as always for the, these cat <laughs> chapters is, is what I do for this this podcast. Still, so- if I like step out objectively and take a, a look outside of my own biases, it's really hard to imagine someone with less privilege than Catelyn has getting this same type of soft treatment that she's receiving from these men? I mean, let's let's just imagine a scenario here. Give it a hypothetical where a small folk person freed Jamie from the dungeons of River Run and sent him back to King's Landing to exchange, let's let's say there was a small folk Tully prisoner or something like that. A Riverlander who was who was kept by the Lannisters. Would these noble seeming guys go all kid gloves on him or her that freed Jamie? I, I think very much not. I mean, Another way I was I was thinking about this, and I thought of a scenario, is a, is a familiar one, especially to to Americans, but not just Americans, to people around the world. Is the son or daughter of a rich or prominent person receiving lenient treatment because the judge is a friend of Senator Witherspoon or some other wasp-sounding name of a senator? <laughs> right.
1: Witherspoon,
0: yeah. Actually, a Puritan preacher. Really good Puritan preacher, too, um, which I'm sure you'll never read. That's fine. As the daughter of Hoster Tully <laughs> – Catelyn is basically let off with a warning for committing treason, treason. Given what Jaime and Brienne witnessed at the inn from just the last chapter, you really see how desperately unequal justice is in Westeros. As we're saying, for the crime of surviving, making a living, as you we were saying this last week, the sex workers at the inn were hanged by Stark or Tully loyalists. Look, I don't think Catelyn deserves the noose for her treason here, but really, when you look at what she did versus what the women at the inn did, Catelyn's crime is substantially worse. She freed Jaime fucking Lannister, a general in the war against her son, the son of a strategic commander of the anti-Stark Run forces. Catelyn 1 occurs right after Jamie 1, and while I think George sequenced this chapter here for a variety of reasons he really wanted to pick up with, the momentum of the narrative that he had established with Jamie's first chapter, I really do think the contrast in punishment is a reason why this chapter occurs after Jamie's first chapter. Of course, Catelyn tried to make it understandable to do what she had done. She got Jamie to swear vows against taking up arms against the Starks and to return her daughters. And she was going to rely on Tyrion to be the person to exact or enact this, this transaction. But that's part of the point. We all have our reasons, as George said, when talking about why people do the things they do. We all have our justifications for why we act the way that we act. For that matter, what Catelyn did is going to have ripple effects outside of the act itself. In just a few Catelyn chapters from now, Lord Rickard Carstark will justify his murders of Willem Lannister and Tion Frey by throwing an accusation back at Catelyn. She did treason, and so can I. Ooh, just let me off the light slap on the wrist, Robb Stark, just like you did your mom, right? Now, I don't think there's a quite a moral equivalence between murdering children and Catelyn's desperate all-in to save her daughters, but as you were alluding to, Catelyn's action is the latest fragment in the decaying social norms of Westeros. Once the norms start to become undone, it creates a stronger permission structure, no matter how illogical, no matter how immoral. For greater deviations from the norm. But to lay all of that on Catelyn is again a kind of a huge stretch. So much of what these inheritors of Robert's Rebellion are doing in the current time has deeper roots, namely roots in the sins of the fathers.
1: And so Catelyn is left alone with her father. Throughout the story so far, Hoster Tully has stood in for an older generation that is passing away, taking with it Catalin's memories, her nostalgia for the way things used to be. The stench of death hangs on the room where she was born, and Catalin's only comfort is that Hoster is too far gone to learn of her shame. What would he make of her now, she wonders? Would you call it a mother's madness? How could I have done otherwise? Catalin thinks of her boys, sweet Bran, fierce Rigon, forever gone, Makes me want to reach into the page and tell her it's not true. But her grief is real, as present as the smell of death around her father. Losing him is hard enough. Losing Ned, even worse. But to lose children is unbearable. It's an inversion of nature. They're supposed to bury us, not the other way around. I could not take it. What would you have done, father, if it were us, your own children at stake? Well, what did he do when it was his own kids at stake? Lord Hoster's eyes opened. Tansy, he husked in a voice thick with pain. Hoster in his delirium thinks Catalin is Lysa, the inverse of Littlefinger thinking Lysa was Catalin the first time they slept together, which is what Hoster is actually talking about. He thinks it's still back then. He thinks it's still the rebellion era.
0: And I think it speaks so well to the theme and that like our past and our history bounce forward to our present. And I think the way that George pulls off this transition is really brilliant because Catelyn is talking to herself and dealing with her own grief about her lost children. And she says out loud, as she's she's thinking a thought and she says it out loud, it's a monstrously cruel thing to lose a child. And immediately Hoster's eyes burst open. And he is reliving Mm -hmm. the moment when he reveals to Lysa what he did to her. You can almost imagine that this was Potentially the same exact thing that Lysis said to Hoster when Hoster revealed the monstrosity of what he did to her. As a writer, it's it's sometimes exceptionally hard to do a hard plot pivot in a chapter occurring in real time. One where like, Catelyn's not going back to Storm's End and Bran the Builder and all these things from thousands of years ago and recounting the history of Storm's End. She's living presently in her grief And that grief allows for this, the start of this, or the continuance rather of this revelation about what happened to Lysa in times past. George nails it here because Catelyn is feeling the grief so hard that she cannot even contain it in her own head. She has to verbalize it. We've, we've all been there when we're feeling something so strongly and we just burst out and say it to ourselves for what we think is ourselves. And that verbalization leads to the Tansy pivot and Hoster's fevered reliving of that conversation he had with Lysa back in 283 AC.
1: All Catelyn can think about is back when she was an innocent child, not a grieving parent. She remembers Lord Hoster ruling the Riverlands wisely and well. But as with anyone, the legend doesn't line up with the person. Catelyn thinks at first that Tansy is a woman's name, some woman Hoster loved after her mother died. Suddenly, she feels like she never knew him at all. And she's right about that, even if she's wrong about what Tansy means. It's similar to Cersei finding Shay's naked body in Tywin's bed. The almighty patriarch was a man of flesh and blood, like anyone else. In the end, he did not shit gold. Tywin, of course, has been framed explicitly as a villain from the very beginning. Like the first thing we heard about him was Ned thinking, I wouldn't leave a child alone with him. That's like leaving a child alone with a snake. In Hoster's case, we're as shocked to learn the truth as Catelyn. Do we really know our parents? Do we even know ourselves? Cersei clamped down on these questions, refusing to even consider them. Catelyn is drawn deep into the dreadful implications of her father's words. Beneath the exalted image waits the truth. I was thinking on this re- reread about the movie Chinatown and the villain in that. He's committed atrocities on his daughter. He's sexually assaulted his daughter, which is worse than anything Hoster did. But he's violated his daughter's physical privacy, and he's trying to gain control of water. So there's some Hoster Tully echoes there. And when the villain in Chinatown is being confronted for his misdeeds, for his horrible sins, he says, I don't blame myself. Most people never have to face the fact that at the right time and the right place, they're capable of anything. And that's Hoster Tully. In this case, the right time and the right place were that Lysa had become pregnant by Littlefinger, who was the wretched strip-leg Hoster mentioned in The Clash of Kings. For Hoster, this was a nightmare scenario. How can he make a good marriage for her now? She has doomed herself to a shameful life, either marrying someone unsuitable like Littlefinger or joining the Silent Sisters. So Hoster took steps to ensure that didn't happen. He gave Lysa Tansy, a.k.a. Moon Tea, to get rid of her pregnancy without her knowledge or consent. Then he arranged for her to marry his old friend, John Aaron, further cementing the Roberts Rebellion Coalition just in time to win the war. I would bet that Hoster didn't even think of this as a punishment, but as a favor he was doing Lysa after she broke the rules. After all, this way, she avoids becoming a pariah, she gets a big castle to live in, servants to see to her every need, she gets a rich, powerful husband who treats her gently. That's her social role, like the roles Desmond Grell and Eutherides Wayne were trying to play with Catelyn, even as they put her under arrest. And just as they can't cover up what Catelyn has done and why, Lysa's role, and everything that goes with it, doesn't make up for the whole inside. For her, it was a punishment, and a monstrous one, that destroyed any chance of happiness. Catelyn remembers how happy Lysa was when she was first married, when it looked like both of them were pregnant. It's heartbreaking to read about Lysa's face lighting up as she imagined her son and Catelyn's growing up best friends like Ned and Robert. But then the blood came, taking Lysa's joy with it. Even the sight of Rob, red-faced and squalling as a babe in Catelyn's cherished memories, was a hateful sight to Lysa. It's a reminder of a happy family life that she will never have. She has been denied that which she wanted most in life,
0: love. This is just my the way that my brain works. But one thing that might seem a little unclear from this scene, because again, it was unclear to me despite having many advanced degrees in many, many sciences, is whether Lysa's initial joy over Littlefinger's – whether Lysa's joy that she expressed to Catelyn was over Littlefinger's child or whether she thought she might be pregnant by John Arryn. And I think the timeline provides an answer here. As we know, there were two sexual encounters between Littlefinger and Lysa and the run-up to Robert's Rebellion. The first one was after the duel with Brandon Stark, where a wounded and delirious Littlefinger thought he was banging Catelyn, which makes um, so much sense given the circumstances of what happened at that duel. The second encounter between Littlefinger and Lysa was a quote-unquote fortnight after Littlefinger quote-unquote healed, and this was when Lysa became pregnant the first time. Lysa revealed this to Hoster, who then forced Lysa to drink the moon tea, which according to the World of Ice and Fire app, quote unquote, nearly killed Lysa. Sometime later in 282, or 283 rather, Lysa was forcibly wed to John Arryn and was sold to John Arryn based on her previous fertility, given that she was pregnant once before. That bedding ceremony resulted in this phantom pregnancy for Lysa, the one where she was happy for just a moment before she got her period. The result is the Lysa we
1: met in the present day, back in Book 1, breaking down atop a mountain, all alone. Someone we couldn't imagine being that happy. Remember what Tywin said about Robert? He saw himself as a hero, and heroes don't kill children. But he needed those children dead to hold his throne. Long after Robert tires of that throne, the stain of those murders persists, undercutting the heroism. We'll see that with Oberyn later in the book and we'll see it with Oberyn's own children. Catelyn wonders why it always comes back to blood. The Sand Snakes declare that this will end in blood like it began, with the death of Tywin's grandson Tommen. In the moment, it seems like the ends justify the means, that you're setting the world to rights, or just avoiding an even worse outcome. But as time marches on, and the things you believe in fall apart, you're left alone with what you've done. And what we do is ultimately who we are. The faith of the seven preaches that as we sin, so do we suffer. Catalan, I think, believes that. Varus doubts it and seems to speak for George on the matter. Sin and suffering are disconnected. Innocents suffer the most. But until the gods decide to make things plain to us, all we have is what we believe. And Hoster believes he is suffering for his sins. That the gods have sent him his stomach cancer, his own abdominal pain, to account for what he did to Lysa. And that's why he asks, forgive me, the blood. Oh, please. He did what he did for duty. He did what he did for honor. In the process, he broke apart his family. And family comes before duty and honor in his own house words. No wonder Lysa stays away from him. No wonder she became so alienated from her own family that Littlefinger was able to turn her against Catelyn as well. Lannister dysfunction is more public. Greyjoy dysfunction is more gleefully obscene. Tully dysfunction is more, it's a more invisible interior drama, like this chapter. It has a very southern gothic feel to it. The tragedy of the Tullys and their tansy. There's no literal connection between Hoster's sins and the downfall of his house, like the Red Wedding doesn't happen because of what Hoster did to Lysa, but it feels like they're connected because they're part of the same structure, the same problem, the same set of priorities, and they fit into the same tragic tone of Catalan's chapters. Catalan only realizes what happened with Hoster and Lysa. She only realizes the dark truth because of how bleak her own adult life has become because she's no longer the little girl waiting for him to get home. In a world where she has been sundered from her own children, the lost and the dead, as she calls them, the unthinkable becomes thinkable, just like when the old men of the castle tried to put her under arrest. That's the end result of Hoster's tansy tea. Far from ensuring the strength of his family, he cursed it, poisoned it, and now it's dying with
0: him. Yeah, that's such a sad... Beat and hoster story, but it's one that reverberates out from his actions in the past. And as many, including George himself, have pointed out, the faith of the seven strongly invokes the imagery of Roman Catholicism. But we can also see some of the cultural ethos of Catholicism here present in the Tully family in this day and age because I'm me, I used to irritate one of my closest friends, a guy who was on the cusp of becoming a Catholic priest until he met a girl, he was in seminary and stuff like that, by relaying to him that my mother was the final Irish Catholic in a 1,500-year line before she switched to Protestantism in her teenage years. But you might leave the church, but the cultural ethos embedded by a thousand plus years of generation after generation, those ethos pass down to you. In this case, the complex guilt my mother felt and still feels, honestly, from events long past is something that stays current. That's Hoster Tully. He rationalized his decision from 282 AC as the best of bad options. Like you said, Hoster probably thought he was sacrificing Lysa's short term happiness for her long term happiness. But this would never be the case because Hoster destroyed Lysa's short term and long term happiness through his actions. And Hoster knows this. That's a very Catholic guilt that he's experiencing in his final days. It's proof that he destroyed the life of someone that he loved, and in his own mind that he loves still. But but it's not truly love, I mean, if we really come down to it. Hoster's mindset is not too dissimilar to Tywin Lannister's, because Tywin is always justifying himself by doing what he thinks is best for his family, for a house Lannister. But what he's truly doing is what's best for himself, his own reputation. If you remember the story from A Feast for Crows, Tywin wanted to marry Cersei off to Rhaegar first, and then he settled for Robert, pointedly telling Cersei that she would marry Rhaegar when Cersei was only a girl and that she would be the queen. This excited Cersei, but the reality was that Tywin was treating Cersei like a broodmare, seeking only to enhance Lannister and specifically Tywin's power to burnish his own reputation. That's the same dynamic with Hoster Tully here. Lysa could not become pregnant by a low-born stripling. Lysa was only fit to marry a high lord like John Arryn, or as we're going to find out in a few Jamie chapters from now, to Jamie Lannister himself, the then heir to Casterly Rock. And this was only to expand Tully power to burnish Hoster's own reputation. He was the father to the heir of Riverrun, the grandfather to the heirs of the Eyrie and Winterfell or Casterly Rock. And that kind of gets us, at least in my own head, into the Southern Ambitions Conspiracy, the great conspiracy of the Lords Paramount Paramount of the North, Riverlands, Stormlands, Vale, and at one point the Westerlands too. The conspiracy to bring down Aerys II Targaryen, which in my mind is still a noble and good thing, was all about the fathers and mothers of these Lords using their children as the coin to solidify the political alliances to take down an increasing erratic and tyrannical king. And again, at a ten thousand foot view way up here, and within a Westerosi feudal political structure, this, in my mind, seems like a noble cause. And yet, when you move down from the clouds, from the somewhat noble ideology that motivated the, that motivated the men of Hoster, Tully, of Hoster Tully's generation, there were the people at the bottom, the pawns. Lysa was a pawn of this conspiracy. A piece to be moved around by her father to bring the Lannisters and eventually the Arons into the southern ambitions fold, and then Lysa was a pawn, a price for House Tully staying inside the fold of the rebellion after it had started. I, I think, and, and we've talked about this before, but I think there's this concept inherent among fans where we piece together the strategic political goals and the tactics to achieve that strategy, and it gets so esoteric, right, and so sterile. It's like moving pieces on a map or on a game board to achieve the optimum end goal. And there's a version of this not just in fans too, but there's a version of this in Westeros called, I believe it's called, the Game of Thrones, if you will, maybe? Is that the terminology that's used? And Hoster was playing the Game of Thrones, moving his pieces around, moving Catelyn and Lysa here and there in order to enhance his own prestige. But George wants to show the human costs of the strategies and tactics of the High Lords when they play their Game of Thrones. George wants us to see that when you get past the high table below the salt, the Game of Thrones is not so sterile, not so intellectual and aloof and high tower-like. There's blood at the level of the ponds, dead people, destroyed lives, broken families. It's only now that Hoster faces that price, faces the damage he did to his daughter, the damage that nearly killed her. And now, at the end of everything, he's seeking forgiveness for a crime, which his daughter, Lysa, can very understandably and very sympathetically never forgive. Hoster didn't probably know the long-term cost of the wrong he did to Lysa in 283 AC or 282 AC, but he knows now in 299 AC at the end of all things.
1: Only in retrospect, only in hindsight when it's too late. And that's the essence of that, that totally tragedy right there. And after such an intense scene all about Lysa, Hoster, and Catelyn, it can be easy to forget about the hashtag best Tilly. Edmure, now back from his battle. Catelyn has to sit and wait for his reproaches. The waiting is hard, she thinks, chafing at her role. Even though it suits her more than Lysa, she's still not fully comfortable in it. Edmure was also trying to live up to his role, the person he's supposed to be, when he went out to fight at the Fords. As he said, tell father I have gone to make him proud. But Hoster's beyond pride. And Catelyn notes that Edmure looks worried despite his victory. So what was it worth? Edmure delivers the bad news from the Blackwater. Stannis got his ass kicked by the Lannisters. Catelyn can't, do, can't feel too sad about that. She wasn't rooting for a Baratheon victory. She still has nightmares about the shadow baby in the south slitting Renly's throat. She still remembers that Stannis said Rob would be next if he didn't bend the knee. It's the same shadow of death haunting the whole chapter.
0: I get why Catelyn
1: considers Stannis to be as much of an enemy as Tywin. But as it stands, Stannis is not nearly as much of a threat as Tywin, which Edmure tells Catelyn. The Lannisters have the Tyrells on their side now. As Catelyn realizes this is a savage blow to Rob's hopes. So devastating that she can't even bring herself to think about it for very long. Catelyn may not have liked the Baratheon bros much, but at least they kept the field divided. Now the South is united against Rob. The Lannisters have a gigantic army, practically unlimited resources, and most of all, political legitimacy. They look like winners now. Without ever losing a battle, Rob suddenly seems to have lost the war. And indeed, he won't lose it on the battlefield. He loses it in the political arena. His fate decided long before the Storm of Swords
0: rains down in full. Exactly. At long before the Red Wedding, the Stark fate is all but decided. And though Rob will later say that he has a small chance of victory if he can bring the phrase back into the fold, the numbers alone tell the true story. In The Throne Show, Stannis tells Melisandre, in a real war, the side with the greater numbers wins nine times out of ten. And that's basically the odds that Robb Stark is facing with the combined lannister Terrell army to his south. Now, As you all know, given any chance, I'm going to bring up the military numbers and the situation here. And here, we're going to find out later from a later Tyrion chapter what the numbers actually are. My father's own sworn swords must account for another 20,000, and there are the roses. Roses smell so sweet, don't they? Especially when there are so many of them. 50, 60, 70,000 roses in the city are camped around it. I can't really say how many are left, but there are more than I care to count anyway. So we're talking about 70 to 90,000 Lannister and Tyrell swords alone, with probably several thousand more Crownlanders and Stormlanders who've been incorporated from Renly and Stannis' army into the larger force. Against that, Rob has fewer than 20,000 men at the start of a Clash of Kings, and even with the casualties taken, Rob probably hasn't total around that same number of 20,000, given that Edmure rallied additional Riverlanders to defend the Fords and the Riverlands uh, in a clash of kings. The problem, as we're going to find out in successive Catlin chapters, is that of those 20,000 or so, barely half of those men are truly loyal to Rob and Edmure. But we'll get to all that. There's plenty of time to cover all of the betrayals that are coming for the Stark side in the War of the Five Kings. The point here is that Rob is in deep shit way before the Red Wedding, and, pol- the political- and political and military pragmatism would probably say that Rob should sue from peace from a position of relative strength. <sighs> but here's where genre comes in. We readers don't want Rob to surrender to the bad guys, the people behind Ned Stark's murder, the people that pushed Bran from a window, the people that desolated the Riverlands during the War of the Five Kings from all those Arya chapters, those horrifying Arya chapters from A Clash of Kings. That's not what the heroes in traditional fantasy do. They persevere Frodo-like against all odds stacked against them. But in the grounded political medievalist fantasy, realism, that is The Song of Ice and Fire, that's what good people do. They give in, surrender, and make the best of a bad hand. Look only at the long history of Westeros to find the good compromising with the bad. Think about Tor and Stark surrendering to Aegon the Conqueror at the end of Aegon's Conquest. Look even at the final Sansa Clash of Kings chapter and all the knights and lords who rode under Renly and Stannis' banners, bending the knee to Joffrey in the Red Keep. That wasn't all the people, though, in that final Sansa Clash of Kings chapter. Because unfortunately or fortunately, Robb Stark will take on the role of those few who refuse to bend the knee. Rob is the hero of history and damn the odds. He's going to persevere. And sadly, it's really not going to work out for him. At all. As far as his riddle told us, the nature
1: of power is fluid, depending more on the interpretation of events than the events themselves. Catelyn claims a mother's right to release Jaime. Edmure counters that she had no right to override Rob's authority and release a captive under Edmure's control. He's used his political legitimacy to change the meaning of her actions, sending word to Roose at Harrenhal that Jaime escaped. This finally tips Catelyn over from numbness to despair. Now the fig leaf of a hostage exchange has been torn away. Why should the Lannisters return her daughters now? That's true. But it was also true when she let Jamie go. There was The Lannisters never had any reason to make this exchange, actually. Did Catelyn just assume Edmure would go along with this? Politics is theater. Catelyn went off script, and now the narrative is being taken away from her, shaped around her, cutting her off from any hope. The invocation of Hall darkens the room, as Catelyn thinks. As with Hoster's sins, there's no literal connection between Hall and the Red Wedding, but it feels like part of the same gothic fairy tale landscape, the same feeling that winter is coming. Catelyn lit her candles to the seven, like she did down at Storm's End. The father for her father, she thinks, the mother for both Lysa and herself, and one for the crone who let the ravens into the world when she peered through the door of death. Catelyn, too, is slipping into the world of death, ushered along by dark wings
0: and dark words. This is so chilling, dude. But that really is the dynamic that Catelyn, rather that George, wants to leave us here at the end of Catelyn's first Storm of Swords chapter. And and I've been stuck for a few weeks now about this George quote that I found a few months ago while I was writing some essays. And I'll just keep bringing it up because I think it's just so good and I like it so much. I mean the best thing this is George Hawking. I mean the best thing is when an unpredictable twist comes out of somewhere, but you've laid the ground but they've laid the groundwork. And then when the reader goes through on that reread and says, Oh, the writer was playing fair with me all along. That's kind of the dynamic here, because what I love about this Catlin chapter is how it serves as the latest in the in the series of groundwork for The Red Wedding. Because readers want Rob to make it for Catelyn to get her girls back, because this is fiction. This is fantasy. This is something that I like to read. And in fiction and fantasy, it's always darkest just before the light, so says the Dark Knight. But that's not what George is going for. But you'd be forgiven as a reader for thinking it on your first time through these books. You said it best in your opening remarks. Catelyn is on a one-way trip to hell in a storm of swords, and that really kicks off here. Funnily, though, where George is unusually realistic, in terms of writers anyways, in how the heroes sometimes don't make it out alive when the odds are stacked against them, there is an exception, because Catelyn thinks that Edmure has condemned her daughters to death with his actions. But that's not what's going to happen ultimately. Brienne will succeed in getting Jaime to King's Landing. Of course, the whole mission of trading Jaime for her daughters is dead before the start of this chapter, and really by the end of this book. But the girls will, or already are in the case of Arya, getting out of King's Landing. So two, wor- two rows diverge in a wood, but they meet at the end anyways.
1: There's that fragile hope for the individuals, even as the houses, even as the causes around them fall apart. You're going to see that much more, I think, in A Feast for Crows. hmm so uh, moving on into foreshadowing and groundwork, there's this one little scene in the chapter we didn't really cover. That's where Maester Vyman tells Catelyn, oh, we got a bird from Rob in the West, and there's some vague bad stuff going down that I'm not going to tell you about just yet. <laughs> it's just enough to make her curious and also us. And we're going to find much find out much more about what happened with Rob in Catalan too when he comes back to Riverrun.
0: Something I was thinking about was that I wonder if the letter actually told Riverrun that Rob had married Jane Westerling, and that was mm-hmm. what he- – Maester Vaiman was being evasive about because, you know, the, the part about Rob being wounded is not false, right? That's, that's what's happened at that, when he stormed the crag. So you have to wonder what is the thing that he's still kind of being like, oh, I, I can't really talk about this. I got to get away. Just like kind of run away right now. And I think that thing might have been the announcement that, hey, uh, King Rob Stark suddenly has a wife. And that's something that I can imagine Maester Five being like, dude, I am not going to be the one to fucking tell Catelyn that her son got married without her permission or leave and that he has fucked his chances of, of maintaining the phrase in the fold of the, uh, um, of the War of the Five Kings. But I, I think that's probably what it might have been, but it's, it's something that I think is going to be exploring significant depth when we come to Catelyn's second chapter about a, two months from now. So in this chapter, we get a lot of references to Mother's Madness, right? We, we hear that from Vyman, signals from Authorized Wayne and uh, the other folks from Desmond Grell. They read as signals for Catelyn's eventual role as Lady Stoneheart and how after Catelyn is driven to a quite understandable, understandable psychological break, after witnessing the Red Wedding, you hear someone say, mad, someone said, She'd, she's lost her wits. So I think George is, again, laying the groundwork for the final break for Catelyn and for the eventual role of her as Stoneheart with these references similar to how we see, like, my st- my heart is so stony, as we saw in A Clash of Kings. And then we get that continuance here in her first chapter in A Storm of Swords.
1: Yeah, that's great stuff, building her to that end state beyond the realm of death when she passes through that portal, just like the Crone. So we wanted to – for our theory and discussion portion today, we haven't talked much about Hoster Tully because he's been in the background. But in the Storm of Swords, we finally start digging really into his backstory. So we just – we wanted to ask the question, Lord Hoster Tully, is he a bad guy? You know, yes or yes, I guess. What do you think, Jeff?
0: (laughs) Oh, man. I I, You know, I I chose this this topic because I think Hoster Tully is – is someone that's very interesting in *In a Song of Ice and Fire* as a kind of a background character and as a, as a historical character, and and I think that he serves a number of great roles in this chapter itself, and and great and serves a, as a great um, continuance of some of the themes that we see from Robert's Rebellion kind of pouring forward into the present era and to so this War of the Five Kings era. So yeah, Hoster Tully is a is a pretty bad guy, and I, and I was really struck when you were talking earlier about. About Hoster, about not really knowing your parents, right? And you start to like realize who they are maybe towards the end. I remember without getting into specifics like I, I had my, my father had passed away when I was when I was very young and but I had always like built this guy up to be this this amazing dude because when you're you know when your dad like passes when you're when you're very young you have, can do nothing but hero worship him and put place him on on a pedestal and eventually I was like told things about my father that were not necessarily as, as flattering as uh, as the way that uh, I'd built him up to be and I think that's something that we're starting to see with with Hasertali here in these Catelyn chapters in A Storm of Swords, that there is a bit more complexity and a a bad dynamic surrounding him. And I think in Storm, we we, we get it from Catelyn's perspective especially, but we also see it from Arya's perspective. There's that scene where Arya is traveling through the Riverlands and she comes up to a burned out village and she's like, ah, is this the the Lannisters who have done this? And like, no, this was Lord Toster who burned Lord Goodbrook's village for refusing to a seed to the rebellion uh, back in the day. So, you know, we have Hoster Tully as this character who is on the good side, right? As I was talking about before, he's on the, the anti-Targaryen, pro-Robert Baratheon, you know, toss down the tyrants sort of thing. But that doesn't necessarily justify all of his actions. In fact, more than anything, Hoster's actions read as Really, really bad in the in in the larger scope of both him personally and his family, but also just the the, the conduct of a of a person in power and leadership in Westeros. And I and I think like, you know, we we had talked about Hoster before, and, I, and I'll reference this again. I don't know which chapter from a Game of Thrones this was, but we had talked about Hoster Tully being kind of the standard median lordly character in a song of ice and fire. If you remember from a Game of Thrones, we had Ned Stark, who was who's a good guy right he has a noble heart he tries to do right by his people but he's kind of the the outlier to the larger whole and the larger whole is one where the lord of a castle of lands of the of a lord paramount tends to be a kind of rather ruthless brutal type character and that's that's Hoster Tully and i've compared Hoster to being kind of Tywin Lannister like earlier before and it's hard to like not see the parallels between him given his conduct with his own daughter and his own family, as well as the his conduct during during Robert's Rebellion. I think Hoster is, is shrewd in terms of as a political figure, as political figures go, as we know from a Game of Thrones, he was the guy that didn't immediately declare war on Tywin Lannister when Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch raided into the into the riverlands. He was the one that sent all of these witnesses and uh, mark piper to king's landing to you know pursue the king's justice to be like hey these guys are doing bad can you do something about this so he was seeking political legitimacy for his actions but that the fact that you're doing a tactically smart thing a cunning thing doesn't necessarily make you a good person and i think hostertali is not really a, a good person you need to look only at the way that Tully was treated by Hoster, the way that Catelyn really was. So you know, you know, you brought this up really well. You know, Catelyn's story is the way that Lysa's story, the way that she wanted. She wanted a good marriage, a loving marriage to someone that she loved, and Catelyn has found that in Ned Stark, despite the fact that she didn't know him at first. But at the same time, even though Catelyn has a happy marriage, she was still a piece that Hoster sold for his for his political advantage in, in Westeros and his political advantage in Robert's Rebellion. You know, I, I think uh, to that rebellion itself and why Hostetelli did what he did, and the reason why he sold Lysa and Catelyn was that he wasn't really in to the rebellion to throw down the II Targaryen to create political legitimacy. As it turns out, he was looking to advantage his own house and house and river runs position in a post-war of the five war post-Roberts Rebellion era. And that's kind of what he ends up doing. So really If you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, does that make you good? I don't think so. But I've talked enough about Hoster What do you think about our Lord Paramount of the Riverlands?
1: I think a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire isn't – Isn't aiming to be insightful about violent acts themselves and instead is more insightful about the perspective on violent acts and what it means to to take them in and what perspective you have to be from and what everything gets in the way of you seeing what actually happened. So uh, comparing like Hoster to Tywin, for example, Tywin deliberately went out of his way to make things more violent. Like that's Tywin's style. Like that's how he shows himself to the world is I will I will do messed up shit to you that you don't even imagine. So you better not mess with me. That's how Tywin thinks he ought to operate himself. And Hoster, we get no indication that's really how Hoster operated. Hoster, I think what's terrifying about Hoster is that he's, yeah, he's the mean, that he's he's following what he just thinks are his his basic instincts and priorities and norms and this is what he ended up with. Like I don't think Catelyn is misremembering her father as a nice and wise man. I think the point is that a nice and wise man still ended up doing this. And I think it's meant to, I think it's meant to reflect back on the audience because as I said in the main episode, as I said earlier in the episode, Tywin we're meant to hate Tywin from the get-go. Right. We're set up to hate Tywin. We're sent to distance ourselves from Tywin and I think recognize Tywin as as a politician, I think I mentioned this before. I think George, like for, for George, Tywin is the amalgamation of all politicians he's ever hated. And that's Tywin Lannister. Hoster is a little more intimate. Hoster is, it's not you're not supposed to be able to keep him at a distance because that's supposed to be dad. That's supposed to be someone who's in your family. And, that you know, obviously everyone has a different relationship with their father. Sometimes people have no relationship with their father. But that's the kind of emotional idea George is going for is someone in your family, someone you have trusted and looked up to was also capable of those things. And I think about that with relation to like, you know, the to the Starks like we, you know, we are we're inclined towards the Starks and we're we are we are made intimate with them at the beginning of the story. But, you know, guys, they didn't end up in charge of the north because everyone liked them. (laughs) How many villages do you think the Starks wiped out? I'm willing to bet a whole fuck ton more than Hostetoli ever did. And we still like them by the start of the series because enough time has passed. And uh, you know, you 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 add you add time to a tragedy, and it goes away. That's why no one accounts for that little village. Only we see about it. Only we get to care about it. For Hoster, that's not even a, a huge sin on his ledger. And also, of course, as time passes, though on the other hand, it seems the the sin with Lysa seems more and more huge to him because everything he did it for went away. Robert's rebellion is over. Robert's dead. Ned's dead. John Aaron's dead. What was it all for? So I think it's it's just. It shows you really what, what what time does to the things you've done and how your actions themselves haven't changed. Maybe even you haven't changed as a person, but enough has changed around you that you look back and everything has a different perspective. And I think that's that's what uh, I think that's what Hoster's supposed to show us through the lens of cattle and through the lens of someone who trusted this man.
0: George has done a a great job of deconstructing a lot of his own political biases in in, in certain ways. You know, I think as we've talked about before. Uh, th- this comes up in, in George's other works about how George kind of seems like a disappointed idealist, the guy who believed in the ideals of of the '60s and free love and the anti-war movement, and then found the same comrades in the '1980s, you know, joining, you know, the, the joining the Reagan Revolution, voting for for Ronald Reagan and, and different folks like them. I, I find Hoster to be really an interesting figure, and I think you you, you brought up something that just really struck me in that. He probably was a nice guy to Catelyn. Catelyn is not necessarily putting him on on, a, on too much of a pedestal. What he, what she's doing though, is is she's looking at him only in the way that Catelyn was able to look at Hoster, because she was the favorite daughter for many years. She was the heir to River Run. Even she was the person that Hoster Tully was building up and was supporting and allowing to uh, to flourish in a way, and genuinely loved her. And I think, in some ways, Hoster thinks that he he loves Lysa as well. But through his actions, we see that that's not really love. If you want to make your own daughter a a a person that has suffered greatly for the own ambi- for the ambitions of your own house and for for Hoster's own ambitions, and that's it's ultimately a, a tragedy for for Hoster that at the end of everything, he's like, oh, all of that shit I did, all of the shit that I was justifying and being like. This is. I must do this for my house, for the prestige of my family, to bring us forward to the next generation. How it's all resulting in this final guilt. I, I can't imagine my last days being consumed with the guilt over things that I did in my, in my in my younger years. But it's hard not to see hoster as 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 experiencing that. That when you take away the Game of Thrones, you strip that away from a person. What's left is. What you did, what you did to your own daughter, your own family, your own people. And so, yeah, I think Hoster being guilty at the end of all time is just a, a really poignant dynamic. So, yes, he is a bad guy. And, you know, at some level, though, that he feels guilty at the end of everything means that he's maybe not just the utter worst, that he actually has regret over what he did. That's one thing you probably cannot say for a character like Tywin Lannister, or as people have pointed out in the chat, like Randall Tarley either.
1: Agreed. And yeah, yeah, those guys were being deliberately sadistic and Hoster wasn't. And I think that that matters in terms of him and his relationship to whatever God exists. But I don't think it matters to Lysa. Like, you know, Lysa doesn't care. <laughs> Hoster's apologizing now. Like, the, you know, the the damage is already long done. And I but I think that's the the point of it is that, you know, it's it's really easy to read someone like Tywin and Randall Tarley because it's it's you know, you don't want to recognize yourself and guys like that. But Hoster friendly friendly father beloved by the community had a secret terrible life going on behind the doors that hits close to home because i think yes. there's i think there's probably more of those guys out there than there are randall tarley's and so that's 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 kind of terrifying in its own way and yeah that the sadness now that's like the uh, the movie magnolia where it's old man jason robards in the bed just saying life isn't short life is long you're left alone with the regret the goddamn hmm. regret
0: hmm. and that's that's 100 percent hoster in this chapter That is a brilliant way to close out this analysis, sir. Excellently said, as always, brilliant. So I think that is actually going to close us out for this analysis of A Storm of Swords, Catlin 1. As always, thank you so much to all of you for listening. Thank you to those who are tuning in for our weekly livecast. Again, if you folks are not aware, we do do a weekly livecast every Monday at 8.30pm for every single chapter, as many as we can do anyways. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts.
1: You can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, ASOIaf or shoot us an email at notacast, ASOIaf
0: at gmail.com. You can find me at Pork Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Beefish on Twitter, Beefish on Reddit, and my website is brendabeefish.substack.com.
1: We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of and de Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies. Septon, Merrifield, Head of Hair. Lady Silverwing. Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Sir Keith of House Corbury, Wilder of Lady Forlorn. Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands. Lord Young of the Ghostwoods. Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sisters, Slayer of Tinfoil. Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune. Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Ice Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads, to become the queen of memes. Lady Danielle of House Lannister, titanium pirate. Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs. Sydney of House Quo, princess of the friendly black hotties in the Summer Isles. Random, fierce cri- protector of cripples, bastards, and broken things. Sir, Lady Jordan, defender of the God's Eye. Lord Peter, not Peter, drinker of strong wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetoid Society. Lady of rainy afternoons, warden of the lake. Lady Ken of House Motown, goddess of sips and wine, and our newest High Lord, Sir Andrew of A- down. So thank you to all our High Lords and ladies, and good to see you, Sir Andrew of
0: H-Town. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you folks so much for your support, and welcome, Sir Andrew, to our High Lords. To Welcome as a, as a High Lord, I guess. That's awesome. Thank you very much for supporting us. So, join us next week as we are skipping Arya's chapters in total for all of the Storm of Swords. We're not going to do a single Arya. I'm kidding, I'm <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. We're going to actually combine some of our early chapters in it for a later episode, which will make sense when you find out when we're going to actually chronologically structure that episode. Join us next week for a Storm of Swords Tyrion 1, in which Tyrion Lannister hits rock bottom, just like Catelyn in this chapter. And hey, good news, everyone. It's all uphill for Tyrion here. Rock bottom means you can only go up for Tyrion. Right, Evan? You may
1: be noticing a theme here, folks, in a Storm of Swords, <laughs> where things start off bad and somehow get even worse. Tyrion might be the ultimate example of that and that is
0: just a powerhouse scene with him and his father. So I look forward to that. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us and we'll see you next time for a Storm of Swords, Tyrion 1.